ask you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 10. We'll be looking at one verse this morning. John chapter 10, verse 11. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, again, an incredible job leading us in worship this morning. Scott, song. I thank God every day for the promises that he's given us. Amen. I heard one preacher call it the checkbook on the bank of faith. And so every day we cash in those checks of God's promises. And Psalm 23, as we sang it, is one that the promises of God are rich for us. So we praise God for that that song and, and just being able to worship him this morning. What a gift. So we gather here uh, this morning. Again, this is a day I'm so proud here of each and every one of you. A day that our time has jumped forward in just a few days uh, from now, we'll have the first day of spring. One of my favorite times of the year, if not my favorite time of the year. There's so much I love about spring. Longer days are coming. I enjoy longer days. The leaves are coming back to the trees. The flowers are beginning to blossom. I can remember every spring, it reminds me of trips through the yard with my grandmother. I don't know if any of you had those kind of trips, but as spring came in, my grandma would see us sitting inside and she'd say, okay, time to get up, let's go. And we would walk through the yard and she'd begin to quiz us on which tree that is and look at the blossoms and try to see and if we knew the names of those trees and those blossoms and if you didn't she may get you to uh, go inside and write them down and memorize them and everything else we got to where my cousins and I got to where we would draw a map of the yard and we would draw the trees of where they are and name them so we wouldn't fail the quiz but the one I always got right was her favorite and that was the dogwood tree she always pointed to us, pointed out those cross-shaped flowers and pointed out the, the little stains on each end, reminding us of what spring and life means and how it came about. And that tree, once dormant or dead seemingly, comes alive and it comes alive with the cross on it. And so she always taught us through that tree every spring about the cross again and again. And as we head into spring and we look forward to Easter in just a few weeks, we want to consider, we want to consider what this means, death and life. We want to consider uh, uh, especially Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection on the third day and, and what that means for us as his people today. In John's Gospel, Jesus teaches, teaches the meaning of his death. Over and over again, really, he teaches what his death will mean. And even though his disciples at that time didn't understand it, in fact, it tells us that after he died and rose again, everything began to make sense for them. But by God's grace, we live in a time that we know of the death and resurrection. So we can look back at this teaching in John's gospel and we can see what Christ was telling his disciples and understand then even more so of what his death meant. And so over the next few weeks, as we begin this time together toward Easter, I want us to consider some of these passages some of these passages that teach us about the death and life of Christ. 
And so this morning, as I said, we'll be looking at John chapter 10, verse 11. Hopefully a verse that is quite familiar to each and every one of you. John chapter 10, verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to just read this verse together. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them um, uh, what it means, who he is, and what, what he's come to do. And he says in verse 11 of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let me repeat that. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's pray together. Father, I I thank you for your word. In just a simple sentence, two simple sentences here, God. There is so much truth for us. Not just truth, but goodness. Not just goodness, but, but mercy, even as we say. Father, we thank you for Christ who came for us, died for us. Father, we thank you for Christ who is our good shepherd, protecting us, providing for us, nurturing us, watching over us, leading us home even. And so God, this morning, may Christ be exalted. May Jesus be lifted up. Just as we have already sung about him, Father, may we continue to proclaim him. Just as we recognize, God, there is no other shepherd to look to. There is no other savior to cling to. There is no other hope that we can express in this world, in this place, other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so may he be exalted. And as he is exalted, may he draw all of us to himself. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're familiar with the Gospels, then you've come to realize that of the four, John's Gospel is a little different than the other three. John lays out his Gospel in, in, a, in a little bit different way. Now, John expresses for us, he, he, he doesn't want to, to keep us guessing. So in John chapter 20, John expresses exactly why he wrote the Gospels. Or his gospel. He says in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, which is a testimony to the fact that not everything Christ did was written down. So the things that are written down have a purpose for us. And what is that purpose? John says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written his gospel, and he states, plainly why so that you would believe Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and by believing in Jesus you may have life that's his whole purpose in writing it and he and and, and while that's the the main point of all the gospels John goes about this a little bit differently in his gospel John's gospel is built off of seven miracles beginning with the water to wine at the wedding in Cana and ending with raising Lazarus from the dead. John organizes his gospels with seven miracles and these miracles lead to teaching points, if you will, all throughout John's gospel. But not only does John have seven miracles, he has what's known as the seven I am statements. 
Seven miracles, seven I am statements where Jesus clearly states who he is by using illustration for those who would hear. He begins with saying, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. I am the door in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd again in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And I am the true vine. In chapter 15, John is structuring his gospel so that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he does this by, by building it upon seven miracles and seven I am statements. These I am statements really stand out to us. I am in the Greek is, are the words ego ami. Ego ami, if you translate the Hebrew, uh, was uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and that was called the Septuagint. Remember whenever God confronted Moses with the bush that was burning and not consumed. And Moses says, who do I say is sending me whenever he's supposed to go back and tell Pharaoh to let his people go? And the Lord said, I am who I am. And whenever the Lord said that, that became the name of the Lord, translated for us as Yahweh, if you will. That became the name of the Lord. And so whenever that was translated into Greek, it was simply ego ami. And when Jesus, when Jesus comes along and he uses these I am statements, he's doing more than just coming up with ways to describe who he is. Jesus is using these statements to make a direct claim to deity. Jesus is saying, I am. You have heard that's God's name. That's who I am as well. God is using, uh, Jesus is using this phrase to say, that's me. He's making a direct claim to deity. He's identifying himself to be God. He's identifying himself to be God. The Messiah who had to be God has come. Jesus is saying that is me. Now he first did this in John's gospel to the woman at the well. Remember, she was saying, we're, we're waiting. They were arguing over, where do you worship? This mountain or that mountain? And, and Jesus is, is talking to her about it. She said, well, we're waiting on the Messiah to come because when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all of these things to us. And Jesus looked at the woman and said, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is using that same ego a me phrase. He's saying, that's me. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come. There is no doubt when you read the gospels there is no doubt when you read the gospels that jesus claims to be god over and over and over again it was not something that was given to him or asserted to him it was not some backdoor thing jesus clearly makes the claim to be god over and over again and now that helps us right because now we have a simple decision to look to. C.S. Lewis, in describing this, C.S. Lewis said, whenever you come to the Gospels, whenever you come to the Gospels, you really only have three choices when it comes to the deity of Christ. Either Jesus was a liar. He's claiming to be God, and so he's lying. He's not God. Either he's a liar straight up, and if he's a liar, then of course he's not God. So either Jesus was a liar, or he was a lunatic. Either he was a liar, or he was crazy. He believed he was God and, and, and he, he, he over and over again claimed to be a lunatic. So either Jesus was a liar or he is a lunatic. Or finally and completely, either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or he truly was who he says he was, Lord. 
And so ultimately, this comes down to the, the way we have to look at this. Either we have to say Jesus was lying, either we have to say he was crazy, or he truly was who he says he was. And friends, I can tell you that all the evidence of Scripture, all the testimony of God's Word points to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he claims it. He claims it clearly. And John's gospel is to prove this. John's gospel comes to prove that he is Lord. But what kind of Lord is he? Is he a Lord that will rule recklessly over his people? Is he a Lord that would rule in, in anger over his people? Is he a tyrant that would come? What kind of Lord would he be? In our passage this morning, in our passage this morning, the imagery that is used for our Lord Jesus Christ is one of a good shepherd. He says, I am, I am the good shepherd. The imagery of a shepherd is used throughout scripture. This is not the first time it is brought up. And so Jesus is not, not introducing something new. It's been used throughout. In the Old Testament, we see it used as the ones who would lead God's people through. In fact, the Lord speaks clearly in Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord is angry with the shepherds of Israel because the shepherds of Israel were evil shepherds. The shepherds of Israel were ones who were misleading God's people. They were not taking them where they needed to go. In fact, the shepherds of Israel were, were feeding themselves and not the flock. The shepherds of Israel were caring for themselves and not even killing the sheep so they could be clothed in fine wool and other things. In Ezekiel 34, hear what the prophecy says from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, there in verse 1, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say, Say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, when with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered." They wandered all over the mountains and all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is what the evil shepherds of Israel had done and God pronounces judgment on them. He is going to punish those shepherds. He's going to kick them out. He's going to put them to death because they have not been faithful, good shepherds. But then listen to what he says in verse 11 of chapter 34. He makes a promise. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain height of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God. 
In other words, these evil sheep of Israel have not led the people faithfully. They have only cared for themselves. And the Lord promises there's going to come a shepherd one day who will be good, who will be faithful. And the Lord says what? I myself will be that shepherd. Jesus knows of this promise. And as he looks to the children of Israel, he says, you remember that shepherd that Ezekiel promised. You remember the one who would come. Even looking at the Pharisees who had not led the people well, who had not been faithful as they should, Jesus looks at them and says, those are the bad shepherds. Remember the promise of God, where God himself will lead his people and feed them faithfully. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I am that shepherd. I am the one who has come. Jesus is the promises of Ezekiel 34. He is the promise of God himself leading his sheep out into pasture, causing them to lie down, causing them to find green grass, feeding them, nurturing them, caring for them. God himself will come. And Jesus is the promise. Hence, the definite article, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the one that fulfills that promise and there is no other. Jesus is the one who who does all that God had said would happen and there is no other. He is the good shepherd. But now, consider that word good for a moment. If we consider that word good, we we would look at it. Now, in, in, in the Greek language, there's normally two words for good. Agathos means morally good or upright, one who, who always does what is right, who is moral. But then there's also another word, kalos, which means excellent or genuine or beautiful. In this passage, the word Jesus chooses to use for himself is kalos. In other words, he says, I am the beautiful shepherd. He's not just morally good, and we know that he is. He's even beyond that. He is beautiful to us. He is genuine. He is true. He is faithful. Sure, anybody could be morally upright. We see those people, but moral uprightness doesn't necessarily mean beauty or genuine or true. Jesus is combining all of that to say, I am the beautiful shepherd. He's attractive. We long for him. We want to follow him as any glorious leader that we look to. We are attracted to him as the beautiful shepherd that will lead us out. More than just morally good, which he is, he is also beautiful to us. And why is he beautiful? Why is he beautiful? What makes him beautiful? He tells us in this passage, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not only does he provide, not only does he protect, not only does he go after the sheep, just as he says, that's what makes him beautiful. But how does he does that? do that? He dies for them. He dies for them. This simple, small verse in Scripture, just these two sentences, give us an incredible summary of what Jesus' death means for us. What happened on the cross is found even here. And if we notice, it's just a few things. First, Jesus' death on the cross is the center of the Christian faith. 
Jesus' death on the cross is the center of the Christian faith. Paul argues in 1 Corinthians that for the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block. Our Messiah came and died on the cross? That doesn't make sense. They thought he would be the conquering king that would lead Israel to be the greatest kingdom on earth. But instead, they didn't understand that he would be the suffering servant at the same time who would die in their place. That's a stumbling block for them. They cannot believe their Messiah would die on the cross. But Paul goes even further. He says, for the Gentiles, this is foolishness. Who would follow someone? Who would follow someone who was executed in such a horrific way? The cross for the Gentiles was saved for the worst of criminals. So who would follow that one? Paul says, Paul says, for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. For the Gentiles, it is foolishness. That is nonsense that our king would die. Our Messiah would die. Even death on a cross, he says. But. To us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God, Paul says. In other words, we can look and you can say that's a stumbling block or that's foolishness, but to us, to us who are God's children, to us who are his believers, his Christians, if you will, to us, the cross is everything. The cross is everything that we hope for, everything that we long for. We look to the cross for all of life and salvation. If it weren't for the cross, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. If it weren't for the cross, we would not be his children, but we would be children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says. If it were not for the cross and what Christ did for that, we all should be in here most to be pitied. For why have we gathered in this place? Why are we listening to this word? If it were not for the cross of Christ that he suffered on for us. If it weren't for the cross, then none of this makes sense. But because of the cross, we know the power of God. Because of the cross, we have life. Because of the cross, we have joy. Because of the cross, we know what truth is. And this is why Jesus was born. He was born to die. He came to earth to save his people from their sins, as Matthew one twenty one says. This is why he taught of his body and his blood, body broken, blood shed, because it was the cross that was going to unite his people through what he did there. And because the cross is at the center of Christianity, we cannot downplay our sin. Our tendency in our world today is to not offend someone. Not offend them with the truth sometimes. So we want to be gentle with this. But brothers and sisters understand when we downplay our sin and what our sin does and the havoc it wreaks on our life and the death our sin brings into us and how it destroys. When we downplay our sin, we are ultimately downplaying the cross. Because Jesus went to the cross to die for our sin. Our sin cost our Savior his life. And when we read scripture, we recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. In 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That God placed our sin upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And we cannot downplay our sin. We cannot downplay the condition we were in. I am not seeking to be offensive. I'm seeking to point you to the only hope you have in Jesus Christ. And Jesus' death on the cross is the center of Christianity. 
And what happened there? Jesus' death on the cross was in our place. It was substitutionary, if you will. He who knew no sin became sin. And how did he become sin? Because he dies in our place. The text says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. All have sinned and the wages of sin is death. And Christ goes to the cross and on the cross takes our sin upon himself and he dies in our place for us. He takes the punishment that we deserve. The infinite, holy, and righteous God takes the sin of man upon himself so that he may die for those sins in our place for us. Isaiah 53 One of the great texts in all of Scripture. Isaiah looking forward says, Surely, speaking of the Christ, the Messiah that was coming, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ Jesus goes to the cross and takes our sin upon himself. He lays down his life for his sheep in their place. I love the great hymn of Philip Bliss. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus took the very punishment that we deserved in our place, condemned he stood. And he took it all. He drank the very last drop of God's wrath for sin for his people. And so there's no condemnation left for the sheep of Jesus Christ. He's taken it all. He died for his sheep. He died for his sheep Jesus' death was not only substitutionary, Jesus' death on the cross was personal. He died for the sheep. He died for people. He died for me and you. Please don't see this as some commercial act. We just trade something for something else. Please don't see this as some exchange like you would have at the store somewhere. No, when Jesus goes to the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't die for a plan. He doesn't die for a possibility. He dies for his sheep. He sees his people and he lays down his life for them. He loves his sheep in such a way that he gives his own life on their behalf. He does what what he, he can only do as the good shepherd, just like any great shepherd would do, right? Any shepherd that sees his sheep in danger, he would go. He would take that danger away from them. He would kill whatever it is that's coming after them. Christ Jesus goes and he lays down his life for his sheep. Brothers and sisters, if you're a child of God, if you've trusted in Christ by faith, then know that Jesus went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for you. 
He lays down his life for his sheep, not just a plan, not just a possibility, but to purchase his sheep through his death. John 10, Jesus prefaced this whole section when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. By name. I know that when the Lord called me to salvation in life, I wasn't a stranger to him. When the Lord called me to follow him with everything and to give my life for him, I was no stranger. He knew me. Before the foundation of the earth, he knew me. Before it began as Ephesians 1, he knew me. And his love for me was so deep that while I was still a sinner, while I was still ungodly, Christ Jesus died for me. But not only is death personal, Jesus' death on the cross was voluntary. It was voluntary. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is an important point for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Jesus did not merely suffer death. Jesus did not merely suffer death. In fact, he goes on to explain this down in verse 18 of this same passage, chapter 10. He says, no one takes my life from me. No one can take it, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus makes this bold claim, and he says, This charge that I have received, I received it from my Father. Jesus makes this bold claim that no one can take his life. That if he dies, it's because he consents to it. He willingly gives his life up. Now you better believe the Jews were guilty. You better believe Pilate was guilty. You better believe all of that because when Peter is speaking there on the day of Pentecost, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. This Jesus whom you put to death, this Jesus whom your death is on, you are guilty of these things. You need to know that you made a ruling about this Christ, but God overruled your ruling. We'll get to that in a few weeks. This Jesus whom you crucified, But you'd also need to know that none of it could have happened without Jesus' consent. They couldn't take his life unless he willingly gave it up. Jesus willfully gave his life for us. Jesus willfully laid down his life on our behalf. Not like the animal sacrifices of old where they would pull the animal out and have to, to pull it kicking and even squealing and screaming to take it to the altar. That's not how Jesus went. He went quietly. And though he could have called thousands of angels down at that moment, though with one word he could have struck them all dead if he wished, he went silently. As a sheep to be slaughtered, the text said. He went silently. Why? Because he chose to give his life for his sheep. He chose to give his life for his sheep. How beautiful is that, friends? Listen to our Savior. 
This is why the word chosen was, was that Jesus was the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd. For how beautiful is this? Jesus takes our place, what we deserve. He goes on the cross calling out his sheep by name, if you will, knowing them personally. And he goes willingly. He goes willingly for us. Not forced. He died for you because he wanted to. He wanted to redeem you. He wanted to save you. He wanted to call you to himself. He died for you because he loved you so much. He wanted to go for you. How beautiful is that? Hallelujah. What a savior. The promises of God that we love, we love so much in Psalm 23. We cross stitch it, put it on our wall. We quote it at every funeral. The promises of God we love so much are all true because our good shepherd came and laid down his life for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why do I not want? Because Christ has purchased everything for us and surely as he has given us his son, how will he not freely give us all things, the text said. He makes us lie down in green pastures. Why? Because the work has been done. Christ has already died for us. Christ has done all of it. All we have to do is believe. He leads us beside still waters and those waters are the living waters of his son, Jesus Christ, where we will never thirst again. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we know our Savior's already walked through that for us. And no matter how dark that valley may be, the light on the other side is far more glorious. Amen. Why? Because our Savior has already tread that path. He's already blazed that trail. And the glory that awaits us is the same glory that has been won for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear nothing. For the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. He prepares that table. Even in the presence of our enemies, we feast. Not worried about who's waiting at the door. Not worried about who may be coming in for us. We feast at the table of our Savior, which is a feast that has been prepared for us through his death. Surely goodness and mercy is ours. Why? Because Christ Jesus has died for us. Our good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for it is good. Lord, and your promises, your promises are too good for us, we must admit. God, I pray that if anything else has been done or said this morning, this would be clear, that our good shepherd is beautiful. And Father, may everyone in this room look to him. No other place, no other one, no other hope, no other shepherd. It's Christ. He is the good shepherd. Because he's the one who died. And Father, may everyone here be confident this morning that Christ died for them by repenting of their sin, trusting in him by faith, claiming the cross as their only hope, the Christ on the cross as their only Savior. Father, help us to love you more and see you as the great shepherd who not only 
dies for us, but leads us every day. Your word says, your sheep hear your voice and they follow. May that be true of every single one of us. All of this we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If you're here this day, today and you need to give your life to this good shepherd, seeing him is beautiful. I'll be standing here waiting. Joining up with our church, we'd love to have you be a part of it as we proclaim the name of the good and faithful shepherd. Let's stand together and sing.